I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. Jason and Michelle are out, but you are listening to Spaces Podcast. Thank you for coming back, everybody. So today we're going to do a little bit of a different episode because we're going to tackle a huge conversation on designing for childhood. Um, And there's so many different facets to it, from age groups to locations to building types and it's all over the place. We just have to have a straightforward conversation with someone who really has dug into the subject. So no bells and whistles today. We're just going to dig right into it. Our next guest is a design critic. Her essays, reviews, and profiles have appeared in numerous publications, including Architect, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. She was an architecture critic for Curved and an opinion columnist at Design. Her latest book, The Design of Childhood, How the Material World Shapes Independent Kids, was published by Bloomsbury USA in 2018. She is currently at work on a new book about the history and future of the American shopping mall. Please help me welcome Alexandra Lang. Alexandra, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, So excited to get you on. Um, This 
has been a long time coming. We reached out and connected a long time ago, but uh, looking forward to the conversation today. Um, so today, as you know, uh, our two co-hosts, uh, Michelle and Jason, aren't in, so we can't speak directly to their children. Uh, Michelle just had a, a kid recently, and Jason has two kids, but uh, we can talk to my childhood <laughs> and and uh, talk about how uh, you've connected or how maybe this book inspired you uh, with your children and um, that whole connection. So uh, looking forward to this conversation. So first off, aside from your bio, which I re- just read, is there anything else in your background that you'd like to uh, leave for our listeners? Um, a little bit of your background, hobbies, <laughs> interest or anything? Sure. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that's really influenced, you know, the way I approach design is the fact that I've been kind of trading off between the world of journalism and architecture for a long time. Um, Even when I was in college, I was an arts editor at the school newspaper and I have a BA in architecture. And then I moved to New York after college um, and worked at New York Magazine before I got a PhD in architecture history. So I feel like my interest has always been in popular architecture and how, you know, design meets the real world, how regular people encounter design rather than in the professionalized world of design. And um, so for me, like when I ended up coming to this topic of childhood and design, like that was really one of the impetuses behind it because I felt like here are all of these things that we, you know, these objects, these places we encounter as children, and we don't even know the world word design yet. We don't even put them in that category, and yet they have such a profound influence over our lives. So it just felt like this place where we are open as children, and also I think adults are open to new experiences when they have children. And so it's just this really fertile ground for design and a, a fertile ground for getting people to think about design that maybe you know don't consider it one of their interests. Yeah. And it was really fascinating reading the book. Again, it's uh, The Design of Childhood. Highly recommend uh, checking it out. And just as a side note for the listeners, there was a lot of one of the things that stood out about the book and why I reached out to you is there's a lot of connection between the way that we do our podcast and and your book of this sort of historical and uh, semi-political uh, connection of how our buildings are influenced and how you know, our perception and through the book, it, it highlights, you know, our perception of children and how we best educate them. Um, so all these outside influences that created or influence the way that we design and build, that was one of the things that jumped out to me immediately. So I can see where you're coming from as far as that, that thinking of how, how our buildings were influenced. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it's, it's interesting that you're the one of the co-host who doesn't have children. Um, And I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed the book because, um, you know, one of the things I noticed as I was writing the book is that so many um, resources about childhood are directed only at parents, but um, which are, you know, a huge number of people in the U.S. But the idea that children are only the concern of parents is, I think, a false one and has created some like negative impacts on, you know, public policy and the design of public space. So I really wanted to write a book that was appealing for, you know, people who were children, not just people who have children, yeah. um, because I felt like, 
you know, parents get so siloed and really like, unless, unless we're all working together, um, you know, on the public realm and kind of on, you know, making the world better for people of all ages, it's not, you know, like, we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, that's very true. That goes with a lot of things. We have to work yeah. together. Yeah. Um, so I gave some brief synopsis of the book. How would you describe the book in like a sentence or two? Um, well, I describe it as you know, how objects and places shape our lives from basically zero to 12. And those objects and spaces arranged in size order. Um, so the chapter, the first chapter is about blocks. The second chapter is about the home. Then we have schools, playgrounds, and cities. And that structure really apes the way children experience the world. You know, at first they can really like not see a hand in front of their face. And then they learn to move, you know, first around a play mat, then around a room, then around their neighborhood, then around a whole city. So I really wanted to have that kind of developmental and spatial chart you know, in the back of my mind and in the back of the readers' minds the whole time they were reading the book. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it you know, it, now that you say it, I see it, <laughs> but it, I didn't catch, you didn't get that. I, didn't, okay. I, I didn't catch the, the, the sort of timeline uh, yeah. of that, but uh, no, it totally makes sense. Uh, so what inspired you to do the book originally? Um, what inspired me to the, do the book was basically having my first child in 2007. Um, my son is 13 now, so you know that's how long it takes to kind of birth a book. But um, I just I felt profoundly changed by the experience of having a child at a personal level, but I also felt really changed at an intellectual level. Um, you know, there were all these objects in my home that hadn't been there before, you know, blocks, but also, um, you know, baby bouncers, cribs, car seats, I had to, you know, put together you know, like a nursery, all of that. Um, and then, like, when we started to explore the city, there were all these, you know, parts of the city I had never noticed before, you know, which playgrounds were closest to my house, which playgrounds were designed for, you know, toddlers rather than big kids, um, curb cuts, which have come up a lot recently as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the um, Americans with Disability Acts. You know, curb cuts are also really important for people pushing strollers around. You know, they're not just um, for people with mobility issues. So I just felt like suddenly this whole like new universe that, you know, had been there the whole time was opened up to me. And, and I think like that's the best reason in the world to, you know, get into a new subject is you, you feel like you're exploring this whole realm. And for me, it happened to be this realm that was actually like completely close to home. Like I didn't need to write about space. I didn't need to, you know, explore something in a remote location. I could explore this new world that was like right in front of me. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so let's go back to the beginning of the book. Um, you spent a ton of time on the blocks section, I noticed. First, what kind of made you feel to, uh, that you needed to sort of set this groundwork with the blocks chapter, I guess? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, initially, um, I had the chapter kind of marked down as being about toys. But then I realized, you know, there, there's a huge literature of toys, like I couldn't open it up that much. And I was thinking like, okay, this book is about design. So what's what's the first toy that teaches children about design? Like, what's the toy that like, every kid of an architect, you know, gets first thing? Yeah. It's blocks. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, if I have to limit it, this felt like a very logical limit for the chapter. And then as I began to research, I found out that, you know, wow, I hadn't thought about it before, but there are so many different types of blocks. You know, I grew up with what are called unit blocks, um, which are the kind of blonde wood blocks where the most basic unit is like a brick shape. And I found out those were created by this woman, Caroline Pratt, who created a whole educational system around them, which, you know, we may or may not get into. But so, so like just from investigating like the first set of blocks that I had, I already had this amazing narrative about how construction and education go together. And then I thought, okay, well, Montessori education is another mm -hmm. popular, you know, progressive system. Do they have blocks? Well, yes, they do. They have these pink blocks that you're supposed to stack in a tower by descending size, and that's supposed to teach another lesson. And then I got to eventually the, the man Friedrich Froebel, who's called the father of kindergarten, and his education system also starts with a differently designed set of blocks. Yeah. So it was like blocks, okay, so basic, but they're not basic at all. Um, and in fact, all of these educators used them and kind of played with them to create systems that taught children about art, um, about narrative and about science just through using blocks. So um, like that was kind of my first like lesson in how rich these seemingly simple objects for children can be. And I felt like, okay, if we're eventually going to get up to city blocks, it's, it's just like, it seemed like the perfect place to start. Yeah. So you don't really get into this very deeply in the book, but there's hints of a previous approach of, of educating children being very regi regimented um, and sort of repetitive and, and by force. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just for a little bit of deeper comparison, can you expand on, on what that, I don't know if you even got that far into your research, but can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, no, I can definitely do that. And I mean, the, the kind of negative educational model that I was using to contrast with these, you know, block-based education systems is what you often hear to refer, here referred to now um, as the industrial model of education. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, starting in the middle of the 19th century, that's when a broader, um, a broader version of public education began to be offered in the US. Before that, most children weren't educated and only rich children would have been educated either by private tutors or um, in paid schools. But um, the, like those early systems of education had to teach a lot of children with basically one person at the front of the room. And so you see people like Horace Mann, um, you know, drawing diagrams of the ideal classroom and it's like a man on a podium in the front and 50 individual desks laid out in a grid. Because if you're trying to teach 
the maximum number of children with the minimum number of educators, you have to do this kind of broadcast education. Like they talk, the kids write it down, and hopefully they learn. <laughs> um, you know, we also see that in things like the one room schoolhouse where you probably wouldn't have had more than 20 kids, but those 20 kids would have been of all different ages. So again, you would have one teacher trying to teach kids of basically seven grades, let's say at once. And so they have to be arranged so the teacher can keep an eye on everyone. They have to be arranged so that the teacher can kind of deal with each form in turn. Um, and in the book, I use um, a descriptive scene of the one room schoolhouse from one of the Laura Ingalls Wilder books um, that a lot of people have read just to illustrate how embedded in even our children's literature, this idea this industrial model of education is. So, you know, that's a model where everything is in words. You know, you're, you're reading and you're reading and writing from a primer, you have a slate to copy things down and the teacher is talking from the front, but it's yeah. very verbal, um, it's not very personalized and, um, and it's a lot of rote memorization. Yeah. And then you mentioned uh, Friedrich Froebel that sort of the father of, of the block mm -hmm. um, in based on the book. Um, and, and I, I imagine uh, the research, he, he appears to be sort of the catalyst for what we know today as like our developmental toys. Um, mm -hmm. Can you go a little bit into his approach and his theory? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good description of who he is and what he's credited with. So yeah, Friedrich Froebel was a German educator in the early part of the 19th century. Um, and he was trained as a forester and a mineralogist. And he, um, and then he, he also worked as a private tutor. So he brought a lot of knowledge to the idea that children could be educated sooner. He thought that you didn't need to wait for children to be, say, six, when at that time they could typically learn to read in order to be educated, but he realized that they, they couldn't read when they were four or five. So all of the education that they received had to be hands-on and through you know, visual and tactile means. So he created um, some of the first kindergartens um, and they were basically a combination of indoor and outdoor education. The garden was a literal garden um, where children would plant and study herbs and other, um, you know, and other growing things. And then when the indoor part, children would sit around a table with a grid marked out of it, and they would be given a series of what he called gifts and what we would call toys, um, which were different sets of wooden blocks. And the, you know, the most basic set of the blocks was um, basically like a three by three cube of nine blocks. Mm -hmm. And there were exercises that were later written down in books that the children would go through to manipulate those blocks, to learn how to, you know, kind of form them up and get them back in the box, to learn how to make a diagonal, to learn how to make a stack. Um, and the teachers, um, who he thought should be women because he had a very essentialist view of women as nurturers and better able to deal with children, um, would kind of guide the children through these manipulations and through that they would learn. So, I mean, you sort of say, okay, that's all well and good. There was this kind of nutty German guy in the woods of Thuringia. Um, how, like, how did this, you know, change the world? Well, it, it did because he had some powerful patrons. And at that time, there were other people in other countries that were also looking for new, 
you know, new education systems. And so basically women from England, from other places in Germany and from America came over and observed these Froebel schools and wrote down his method and, you know, brought back these gifts um, to their countries. The, the main proselytizer for Froebel in America is a woman named Elizabeth Peabody in Boston. And they set up um, Froebel kindergartens all across the US in the latter part of the 19th century. And because this method, you know, was based on these simple toys and was based on these books where they kind of wrote out the method, it, it was capable of kind of spreading internationally. Um, so it's also just a good example of media for children and how they it can rapidly spread even in this kind of like initial industrial age. Yeah. As we were talking, as we we're talking about toys, what comes to mind recently is I don't know if you've seen this uh, sort of viral video that's been going around of this mom that places like a random household object and then a toy in front of her child to see which one the child goes for. <laughs> and no, every. I <laughs> and, I haven't seen that. Is, is it on TikTok or I have uh, to go look that up? I think it. I think it originally was on TikTok, but you okay. could probably find it anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so she puts like a TV remote and then whatever favorite toy, and then a, mm -hmm. a box of tissues and whatever toy. And every single time, the kid goes for the random household item and not the toy, <laughs> which is so funny to me. And I wonder if she put blocks and then a random household item, what they would go for, because these are all just like uh, off of the cartoons that uh, I'm sure are on TV nonstop. But does that jog anything in your mind about sort of child development and the way they perceive the world and if there's interest in an actual toy? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, I mean, first of all, I would say that... Um, a, like, we don't need toys. Like, we don't have to have toys. P children found things to play with before um, toys were something that most um, people could, you know, could buy. And, you know, there are, you know, in museum collections, there are essentially, you know, different kinds of toys made by ancient civilizations with sticks and rocks and, you know, binding them together. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how, you know, basic games like baseball originated with sticks and rocks. So, um, so yeah, so we don't need toys. Um, I would also say from that something that, you know, we should all keep in mind, which is that children are smart <laughs> and they are observing all the time and they see what adults value and they also value those things. I mean, why do kids grab your phone um, and the TV remote? Because they say you grabbing the phone and the TV remote. So they're, they're absorbing an idea of like, what things are valuable and what things are fun from their parents. So if a toy is just sitting there, you know, maybe they'll be attracted to its color and shape, but maybe they'll be attracted to the thing that they see their favorite human picking up all the time. So fascinating. That. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. So now since we're an architecture building show, <laughs> let's jump yeah. to, to the building uh, yeah. side of this conversation. So as you're reading through you, a big cross section um, where a lot of change happens, we're talking about the 19th century, where there was a shift to more focus on the needs of children. And then there's this idea we kind of uh, mentioned of evolution 
uh, rooted in the Industrial Revolution. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that collision of the Industrial Revolution and how our perception of how we take care of and educate our children um, and then how that affected home design? More specifically, you talked a little bit about the whole family house concept. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, super broad strokes here because this yeah. is like oh, this is a lot of time, many yeah. centuries. But basically, yeah, so in the 19th century, more people moved to cities, um, more people started working in factories, and that meant the children who had been kind of an integral part of like the farm and rural economy and had essentially in some way been kind of working for their families, um, you know, from as long as they could walk or, you know, kind of manipulate <laughs> things. Um, when they got to cities, initially, they were put to work in factories. But around the middle part of the 19th century, there started to be reform movements, particularly led by women who were basically horrified that children were being forced to work in factories for a wage and often injured, um, you know, from the age of, say, five on. And so these women started to push for labor reform and started to push for children to be educated. Um, and that basically created this kind of cultural shift. Um, you know, children were no longer seen as kind of in a waiting room until they could be productive. But now childhood was a much longer period of time and children needed something to do if they weren't being employed in factories. And the answer was education. So, I mean, the industrial model of education gets developed to keep kids out of the industrial model of industry. But it also created this world of childhood, this, this sense that childhood was this really um, separate space and that children had different needs uh, that hadn't really occurred before. Um, and at the same time, the Industrial Revolution made more goods um, more affordable to more people. And so you start to see the development of the toy industry, um, especially um, in Germany and some Scandinavian countries, because a lot of the early toys were wood. And so like the, for the forests there were used for toy production. Yeah. And you just begin to see toys more accessible to more people, which means those toys need a place in the home, which means that children's space in the home grows, which means that suddenly you have children's rooms, you have children's furniture, and the single family home in particular starts to transform around a more kind of like equal weighing of the needs of children and the, and the needs of adults. Um, and this happens over a really long period of time. But I mean, if you think about American homes now and kind of like count up the square footage that's set aside for kids to have their own room, for there to be a family room or a playroom, for there to be a backyard that's usually stocked with a sink, swing set, like that amount of space for children, you know, didn't exist in a lot of homes in the 19th century. It would have just been like a family bed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like ultimately domestic architecture has been transformed by this idea of childhood, especially in post-war America, like the amount of space we give to kids in the private home has, has just expanded more and more. Yeah. After the children move on from, the house being their their main environment they they step to into school um so that's kind of where you see the sh a next level of the book go mm -hmm. and through uh i think you kind of lean more towards the 20th century here where yes. we're talking about how school design went under a massive shift and um 
you you touched on the the one room schoolhouse uh, previously, um, but now in the twentieth century we're shifting towards uh, a new c- way to approach school design. And my personal favorite is uh, the Crow Island School, which is in Winnetka, Illinois, by Perkins and Will. Can you talk a little bit about the features of that school and maybe just a little bit of a a touch on uh, societal perception and why this started to shift? Yeah. Well, um, so like as I was saying before, uh, you know, in, in, even in the late 19th century in the U.S., there were these um, experimental and progressive kindergartens where kids could play with toys, and that was seen as learning. Mm-hmm. Um, but as kids got older, like once they could d- learn to read, their education tended to become more restrictive and based more on that industrial model and you know a teacher lecturing from the beginning of the room. But in the early 20th century, people started to see you know, how much more children love their education when it involved building things and when it involved, you know, making art and when it involved like going outside and, you know, kind of looking at things in the garden. And they began to wonder, like, can we use that for older children? How can we change the curriculum so that it's more open for children's exploration, even when they're in the elementary grades and in middle school? Mm -hmm. And so, that happened, and initially that happened more in private schools and in lab schools, but it began to be absorbed into the public school system. And um, Winnetka is a very wealthy suburb of Chicago, and it had a really, um, you know, kind of like fascinating and charismatic leader in Carlton Washburn, who was the um, principal and then the superintendent of schools in Winnetka. And he wanted to build basically kind of the first 20th century school that would really embrace this model of education and kind of reify it as architecture. Um, and that and that happened with the Crow Island School. So um, the Crow Island School was designed by Eliel and Arrow Saarinen along with Perkins and Will. And it was designed basically from a child's point of view. So if you go into the Crow Island School, which still exists and is really, you know, a gorgeous like early modernist building you'll see that all of the doorknobs are lower than usual because they're kind of set for like a five-year-old's hand height you'll see that there's like a chair rail along the wall at the same level and above that are wooden walls um that like are still original to the building you know completed in 1940 and those walls were made to tack up student work so like all around the school you see that the architects have put like made this space for children to display their work all the time. Um, the, in the auditorium, the benches are actually graduated in size so that the little kids can touch the ground when they're sitting on the benches <laughs> in the front of the auditorium. And as you get older, you move towards the back and the benches get bigger. So, you know, everything was designed to be child centric rather than teacher centric. Yeah. Um, and that was thanks to Carlton Washburn and, um, and Francis Pressler, who was the kind of director of education for the school. So it was this way of kind of manifesting their values about education and then making it really easy to teach that way because every classroom has huge windows and each classroom has its own outdoor space. So, you know, people could flow inside, outside. And they also have a wet room. So it was really easy to do science experiments or messy art projects. Um, And like, those are just, you know, not things that have been part of the previous generation of classrooms. Yeah. I, um, so 
as we're talking about this, I recall being a kid and going to my dentist. And I remember, I remember uh, they had a small door next to the main mm-hmm. entry. Uh, and I just loved it. And going to the dentist was actually fun. For that that simple thing of being able to have my own entrance uh, was just so amazing to me. And I remember I, I still remember that to this day, being able to go through this little small door. Um, and it's just something that stood out to me, which um, makes a lot of sense to how you should approach because you, you have a sense of this is my space. Right. You have a sense that like, you, like we don't think of it once we grow up, but children perceive the world as not for them. You know, yeah. like as soon as they go out there, it's like they can't reach things. It's difficult, etc. And one of the only spaces, you know, you consistently see like low sinks and low water fountains is things like children's museums or, you know, YMCA's. So that dentist was signaling that like he liked you in a way, right? <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't assume it was a he, but that, that this was a space that you could feel comfortable in. Yeah. Um, and, and like as a child, you don't kind of intellectualize it that way. But you respond to it that way because you're like, oh, they know the children come here. They must want me here. And I don't know, to me, it's kind of great to think about something like the Crow Island School as this kind of warm embrace. Like children know that once they get there, like they're valued. It's for them Um, because so much of the world doesn't feel that way. Yeah. Um, And then on the opposite end of that, you know, at the Crow Island School, there was a lot of there was also a lot of connection to the outdoors, right? Each each class had um, pretty much immediate connection to the outside, and there's large windows that went all the way down to a child's height. Um, on the opposite end of that, my high school, we always talked about how it was more like a prison. <laughs> in, any thought? Any thought to, or maybe in your research, kind of what that sets up a child for or that the the difference of those sort of environments? Well, I would guess that your high school was probably built in the 1970s or early 80s. It was actually a new school. That's more more of a factor, a function of where it was located. Uh, Not not exactly safe area, but, but just, just a thought of um, sort of what that does on a, to a yeah, child's, yeah. you know, state. Well, I mean, at the most basic level, I would say um, it, like, it makes you feel not wanted, like, either inside or outside the school. I mean, I think children are very perceptive about, you know, what's considered a bad neighborhood and, like, how architecture um, is made fortress-like, either through solid walls, through grates over things, you know, through, you know, kind of not having benches and other amenities. And so it's like you were repelled from the outside of the high school. And I don't know if there were, you know, metal detectors inside that you had to go through. Probably now there would be. Um, You're also repelled from the inside. So um, it's really, it creates an atmosphere of suspicion of like adults, but also of the children, which is not conducive to learning, which doesn't make you want to go there. And um, is, yeah, it's, is a sad thing. I mean, this, this makes me think now, um, you know, during the pandemic, there's been a lot of discussion of creating outdoor classrooms. Um, and I read kind of a heartbreaking email from a principal of a school in the Bronx that was saying basically like, it's fine for you all in your wealthy white neighborhoods of New York 
to talk about, you know, building outdoor classrooms in your schoolyard, but there was a shooting um, in, you know, near two blocks from our school two weeks ago, and I don't feel that it's safe to have kids outside. So, yeah. I mean, she feels like her school probably is already somewhat fortress-like. She feels like her kids are safer inside. And so, you know, anytime we're talking about um, these issues of, you know, like children in public space in schools, you also have to say that um, different children, different demographics, different parts of cities have a really different perception of like, whether it's better to be inside the fortress or outside the fortress. Yeah. Now let's jump to the playground. Oh, you mm-hmm. kind of touched on it right there. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, so s- simultaneously, there was sort of a concerted effort to to get children off of the street because um, you you're playing. Uh, it's called stick ball, I guess, at the yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, baseball in the <laughs> even street. Even my dad, yeah, my dad played stick ball even like in New York in the '40s. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, so there was this move to get kids off of the street. Uh, to more safe areas so they could play more freely. Can you talk a little bit about that movement? And uh, I have no idea how to pronounce this when I read it, <laughs> but it's, uh, what is it? D-I-J-K-S-T-R-A-A-T in Amsterdam. Oh, yeah, the the Dijkstraat playground. There I mean, you. that's not exactly right, but that that's an Americanized, you know, Dutch pronunciation. So the Dijkstraat playground. Um, yeah, so yeah, so there are a lot of issues here. Um, playgrounds are really fascinating because they're definitely a kind of be, be careful what you wish for situation. Because I think playgrounds are great, but by putting kids in playgrounds, we basically made it okay to make the rest of the city not safe for kids, which is ultimately an ongoing problem. But um, in the early part of the 20th century, traffic picked up in cities. There were carts, there were wagons, there were cars. Um, The streets were just kind of filled with people and traffic. And so kids who had been able to kind of carve out a place for themselves on the street started getting killed, you know, a lot um, by traffic. And so again, these reformers thought, okay, what if we make a place for kids to play that isn't the street? Um, You know, it was a time, the city beautiful movement, people were building new public parks. What if we set side part of those public parks for kids. And so that's when the playground is born. And that becomes really, along with public schools, the first things that, you know, public government money are are paying for that are specifically for children. And those early public parks are beautiful. Uh, You know, they often had, um, you know, a house that like had athletic facilities um, that might distribute milk because um, milk was seen as a way to really improve the health of uh, inner city children at the time. Um, They had outdoor calisthenics classes. They were, I mean, they're really more like what we would consider like a Y or a boys and girls club or something like that today. They had a lot of programming. Yeah. So they were great, but they also created this problem that we're still dealing with of, like letting the streets be dangerous when men, the kids had to be escorted to the playgrounds and also they were policed, their behavior was policed when they weren't in the playgrounds. So the Dykstraat playground that you brought up is one of um, 700 playgrounds that were designed by an architect named Aldo van Eyck in Amsterdam after the second world war. Um, Amsterdam had been, you know, kind of heavily bombed in a lot of places, you know, buildings and places were destroyed. And 
Van Eyck saw playgrounds as a way to fill those, some of those empty spaces and also be a space for healing um, because children needed a space in the city for themselves, you know, not only to play, but also to kind of heal from trauma. Um, they needed, you know, somewhere to go for themselves. So um, Van Eyck created basically this kit of design parks. I mean, his, his playgrounds are very abstract. Like they don't, they don't have a lot of like colorful plastics stuff. Yeah. They don't have climbing structures shaped like elephants. He, he really, his idea of respecting children was giving them just these very simple elements that were things like, um, you know, igloo shaped climbing domes, uh, sandboxes, little kind of concrete tuffets that you could jump on or sit on. Um, so very, very simple abstract sculptural elements that he then remixed across these 700 playgrounds, which were fit into all kinds of like odd little spaces across yeah. the city. And basically any neighborhood that thought they needed a playground could send a letter to the office of city planning where he worked and say like, we have this empty lot, we want a playground. And he would try to fill that. Yeah. Um, so it was like a healing for children. It was also a healing for the city to put something in those empty spaces. You know, the interesting thing about, you know, this specific part of the book of Playground is it's not um, like the, the concept of a playground is still sort of foreign to inner city communities, uh, shockingly, to in 2020. You know, as a child, I remember still yelling out car because we played football in the street um, because they're, you know, the closest park to me, I think, was probably like a mile, which isn't that far. But as you alluded to, you know, there's there's still a dangerous path to get to the park, um, you know, in these particular areas where there may be gang um, violence or something like that is one element of it. But then there's cars. There's not a, a good, clear path to get to the park. Um, and then when you get to the park, it's completely abandoned. It doesn't have like the programs that you mentioned to sort of uh, bring a good environment to the park. It's just a big block of grass. So um, there's not this commitment to, to what a playground is supposed to be for children. So uh, it, it, it was just interesting to read through that and just know the difference of reality in different areas of the of communities yeah. yep no um i mean what you describe yeah is basically true for i think most of the you know inner city lower income areas of most major cities and that's something that i think has been talked about more um it, again in the context of the pandemic um you know wanting children to be able to get outside, you know, even during quarantine and realizing how poorly distributed um, public amenities like playgrounds are. Like they're just the percentage of green space in low income communities is, you know, far below that of high income communities. So even if people want to get outside, even if they feel safe being outside, which is not always true, they can't do it. Um, and even as cities have closed streets and created play streets, which again are a historical concept, like, you know, too bad you couldn't like apply to close off your street every day. So you didn't have to yell car while you were playing football. Like even the distribution of closed streets has again, kind of aligned with income levels. Um, so, you know, even when we're creating temporary infrastructure for cities, 
we're still selling, you know, basically black and brown kids short. Um, and going forward, as maybe some like pandemic design changes to cities are codified, like that, you know, like equity has to be part of the discussion. Because yeah, yeah when I say playground, and when you say playground, <laughs> we're probably picturing two different things. And that is unfortunate. And, you know, like, everyone should have access to those amenities. And I think it's been a blind spot for too long, just how they are really distributed um, by income level. Yeah. So now we're getting a little bit older and our, our playground has grown <laughs> yeah. to, to the city level. One of the lines that jumped out um, sort of sets the stage for, for that chapter, uh, which was a title of a 2007 article that went viral, viral in our terms today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, 2007, I guess it was considered viral in 2007. Uh, it was how children lost the right to roam in four generations. Can you talk a little bit about that article and its findings? Sure. Um, so that article was um, published in the Daily Mail, which is a British publication. And the right to roam is um, like a somewhat of a UK centric term um, for like kind of how... <laughs> what is your child's geography? How ch far can your child go? Like, do you allow your child to go um, from their home without um, an adult accompanying them? Mm -hmm. And it tracked just like four generations of one family showing how um, like the grandfather had been able to like run off into the woods for himself. Whereas um, the child like was basically had to stay like on in his yard and on his street. Um, and it, I think the reason that it went viral because it, it was because it was sort of saying to parents and grandparents, like, you're not crazy. Like, you did, like, go out after school and run around with your friends and not come home to dinner and your mother didn't know what you were, where you were. And you do not allow your children to do that now. But, like, it isn't just you. And, and I think the really important part of that from a design point of view is that it's not just on you. Like there's been a cultural change, um, but the cultural change is not just in response to, um, you know, now debunked stories um, about child snatching, which is like does happen, but it's a very small percentage, but, but they're actually in response to um, physical changes that come from, you know, wider roads, faster cars, like the design of subdivisions. And so some of the loss is in response to like real dangers, not typically the ones that we identify. Um, and that it is a loss that like children have lost a right that they used to have because of the way that we're designing cities. And I mean, the reason, part of the reason I wanted to end the book by talking about things at the city level is that, you know, it's not going to get better unless we can get politicians talking about these issues unless they're addressed at the level of departments of transportation. It yeah. can't just be on individual parents to say, okay, well, my kid can bar bike a mile because like, where's the infrastructure? Like, is there a protected bike lane? Like th that's part of the reason that like transit advocates are fighting for these things, you know, for themselves as adults, but also for children yeah. so that kids can get that right to roam back and that it will be safe. Yeah. And I was just having this conversation the other day is, you know, looking back into my childhood, some of the most vivid and impactful memories that I have are when I was roaming all by myself. 
um, you know, I would occasionally, like, uh, me and my brother would go with our dad to, um, he played in basketball tournaments, and it would be on a on a large uh, college campus. So in his mind, you know, there was some level of safety and being able to just let us go and just roam an entire college campus like that was being on my own and having that independence was the most impactful and vivid thing that I remember as a child. And you definitely have lost that uh, as we've gone through time. And I remember as you know, being in my neighborhood, my generation was probably like right in the in the heart of that change. Because I remember my mom saying, you know, stay where I can see you. Um, so it's like I had this block radius. She had to be able to look out of a mirror from the kitchen or be able to look out of one window to see where I was. And so that radius started to get tighter and tighter and tighter. And now with technology it's like why even go outside and <laughs> just stay inside that's a whole yeah. nother thing but <laughs> yeah yeah well, we could talk a little about that a bit about that if you want but yeah no the college campus is a great example and actually um my parents are both professors and on friday afternoons we would get dropped off at my dad's office every friday and we'd like go up to his office and kind of check in with him and then we could wander around the campus and we spent a lot of time in the student center we got to you know buy hamburgers we got to go to the arcade and it was great because actually you know the other afternoons we had activities we had a babysitter all this other stuff but but it was like the campus could be our babysitter and my brother and I, you know, took full advantage of that, like in a really positive way. So, yeah. And I would say, um, I think that relates to, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the city chapter, vis-a-vis cities, which is that I think we need a lot more spaces that are, that like campuses are kind of semi-public, semi-private. They're in this in-between zone where there's some amount of supervision, but there's also a generosity of space. And one of the ways you can get that is through things like courtyard housing, um, which is not built so often anymore. You know, we're building all these like point and podium towers that like take up the whole lot. But um, if we built more missing middle housing, say like five-story buildings around a courtyard, those would really be ideal for families. And the courtyards um, would then become these um, like semi-supervised kind of group supervised playground spaces. Like your mother wouldn't have had to keep an eye on you because she'd know that there was a neighbor two you know, stories below that was keeping an eye on all the kids. I mean, you know, like it's actually like a great time saver. I mean, like it allows people to like do other things besides supervise their own children all the time, Um, which is a, you know, it's a big problem, especially for women now. So um, there are all kinds of like policy measures and design measures could be taken to like give children back that right. Um, But there's just like a question about whether there's a political will to do that. Yeah. And yeah, the demand is there. The need is there. Now yeah. there's just the will yeah. <laughs> to, right. to, to, to take right. it over the edge. I mean, we've like we've created a culture where it's seen as the best thing to do for your children to have a single family detached house with its own yard, kind of like privatize all that space. Yeah. But I just don't really think that's true. I mean, kids want to play with other kids. So make that easier for them. Make there be just other kids around all the time. I mean, like that, that's the you know, kind of American childhood that a lot of people are nostalgic for that just kind of like the kid, like you didn't need to have a particular friend. There was just like a group from the neighborhood that you could hang out with. 
Yeah. And at least in, in California, uh, specifically that neighbor or that, um, that private yard is getting smaller and smaller. Uh, so that complicates things of, of that, mm -hmm. you know, what we thought was the way to go. Um, and the park isn't always getting compensating for that, for that lack of yard. So there's something that has to be resolved there. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So, uh, Alexandra, after all of this research and putting the <laughs> book together, because there's a ton of research, you can tell you, 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 yeah. you dug I mean, in I, deep. I think now looking back on, I'm like, maybe I didn't need all of those examples. <laughs> uh, so, after all of that research and, and putting the book together, have you found sort of a, a through line concept that has driven the evolution of the material world for children? Well, let's see. I mean, the through line for me, and really, I think like the, the theme of the book really is this idea of independence. Hmm. Um, and then, and really independence, like physically, intellectually, spatially. Um, so I think that goes, you know, from the block to the city really easily. And so I think for me, um, I can see designers over time kind of seesawing back between like independence and then fear and, and these sort of cycles of children getting more from the government, children getting more facilities and then fear taking them back inside or like privatizing childhood again. Hmm. Um, and so like I try to end the book on a positive note by saying, you know, I see things like the free range kids movement and that, you know, seems to me to be pushing back on this idea that, uh, you know, children should like stay in their own private universe. So I guess I see it as a cycle mm -hmm. and um, I'm hoping things like my book and like and lots of other initiatives that I see can help us push towards like the freedom and openness part of the cycle and not and kind of back into the privacy and fear cycle. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like just, you know, over the recent months, there's been a lot more talk about neighborhoods and like taking street space back from cars and like which children have, um, schools and playgrounds like in their immediate neighborhoods that they can get to on their own so all of that discussion i think could lead to a positive outcome like it's the right conversations to be having but like can it be capitalized on in like a permanent and physical you know design way yeah um that may be your answer to this question but if there's something different uh let me know do you think there's any societal changes or or outside factors that are evolving childhood today and into the future? Um, and do you think they're, and what, what are your thoughts on sort of implementing those? Well, um, it makes me think a lot about a lot of the reporting on um, millennials and like Anne Helen Peterson, who's a cultural critic, just wrote a book called Can't Even About Millennials. Um, and, you know, it focuses a lot on burnout. And I know that she has a chapter on kind of the way millennials were, were raised. But I think the expectations of people in the working world, especially people like millennials in their childbearing years, shall we say, um, have really become too high and people are starting to burn out. And part of that um, comes from the expectations of providing everything for your family yourself right? Like that you need a house where like all 
like all the things you, your kids need are provided. Like you have your own playset, you have your own toys, all of that, which, you know, exerts a high cost in terms of maintenance, um, in terms of consumerism and in terms of, you know, kind of time spent supervising. Yeah. And so I think, that connected to ending burnout culture and creating more realistic expectations about you know what how on people should be at work um we also need to create more realistic expectations about how on people should be at parents Mm -hmm. and redesigning the public realm to make more kind of communal life with children possible would go a long way towards relieving a lot of those pressures so i mean Cultural change is really difficult, but I guess, and maybe you have to get to this point of cracking, um, cracking up to um, create like a political movement around that. Uh, but like, I believe it could happen. I, th- I think we're at that point because I, I think that people, you know, kind of can't go on the way that they have been. Yeah. So if there, and you can, you can choose the person. But if there's one piece of advice that you could give to like the designer, the builder, the developer, the the policymaker, um, who would you direct this advice to, and what would that advice be in regards to designing for childhood? Gosh, I feel like, I mean, I feel like my advice is kind of general enough so that maybe it would apply to all of those people, um, which is basically that you know, children are people too. And like, you need to listen to children. Um, You know, one of my heroes coming out of researching the book was Caroline Pratt, who I mentioned before, as the inventor of the unit blocks. And she um, was an amazing, like early 20th century educator. And she wrote a book called I Learn from Children. Mm. And that was really like how I felt like that was like I should have used that as the epigraph for my book because that became my motto and that, and that's really true. Like there's this, there's this way that a lot of people, you know, policymakers, I would say, and designers are kind of always putting their own expectations onto children in terms of the way they design. And you can learn so much just from watching children, from listening to children Um, I talked to library designers who figured out ways for children to contribute um, basically like by placing dots on pictures to like, like choosing what they would want for their space. And that is like a tremendous creative resource that I think not enough people take advantage of. And it means that they're designing for their idea of what they wanted when they were children, you know, (laughs) 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and they need to listen to children now. Um, because they're really different and um, they have a lot to say. Yeah, such a great point. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Um, Please, 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 if you are anywhere in the realm of designing for childhood, for children, this is a great resource um, to get a a sort of a broad level understanding of uh, children and how our spaces have evolved to accommodate them both negatively and positively. Um, so I highly recommend getting this to, to get a better understanding of that. Again, it's called the design of childhood, how the material world shapes independent kids um, by Alexandra Lang. And Alexandra, you are also working on the shop uh, book on shopping mall, right? 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The history and future of the shopping mall. Okay. And it's not just about dead malls. That's what I have <laughs> to tell everyone. Everyone's like, oh, dead malls. I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah. Like, I don't do, I don't do negative books. <laughs> yeah. So, no. oh, I'm so happy to hear you say that. I have a whole opinion on <laughs> the negative approach. <laughs> to. Oh, yeah. It's not for me. I would just get depressed. I mean, you know, books take a long time to write. Like, why be in that headspace for that long? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So highly recommend getting uh, The Design of Childhood. Follow along with Alexandra uh, for her next book. Alexandra, is there any way, um, how, how should people follow along with you? Social media or what do you think is the best way? To- uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, I have a website, which is just alexandralang.net. And then I am like pretty active on both Instagram and Twitter. And my handle is at Lang Alexandra, just my name reversed. And you can recognize me. I have this um, pretty yellow Mary Mecco pattern that has basically become my signature. So if you see a little yellow circle pop up, that's me. Okay. And then Lang is spelled L-A-N-G-E. Uh, yes. <laughs> some, some don't have the E on the end. So I just want to make sure to point that out. Um, so thank you so much, Alexandra. Really appreciate it. Love this conversation. Thank you. No, it was fun to talk about all of this again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, To the listeners, thank you for listening. We will talk again soon. Thanks. That's all for this episode, but keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. Part of what makes the spaces really beautiful is it's a bunch of glass and light and transparency but it does also make for the acoustics to be a little challenging. Um, And then similarly is visual privacy. So you really can walk down the hall and see what every single person is working on. And sometimes that's a good thing because it makes you want to ask a question. Hey, tell me about your business. This looks really interesting. Um, But there's definitely, I would say more times that you're like, I don't really care for someone to be looking over my shoulder right now. Um, And it just can just not feel so pleasant when you're inside of your office and you want some privacy. Right now, if you ask what is the number one challenge for most organizations, it's finding the right talent. And we are hearing, you know, 80% of those in the gig economy are saying, we don't want to leave this. You you can't pay us any, any amount of money to leave this economy. And we like being our own masters. And thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. 
we share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.